You're listening to the CXMH Podcast. CXMH is a podcast at the intersection of faith and mental health. Welcome back to CXMH. My name is Dr. Holly Oxhandler, and I am joined, as always, by my wonderful co-host, Robert War. Hey, Robert. Hey, Holly. How are you doing today? I'm doing all right. How are you doing? I'm good. I'm excited to, to have a return guest on today. Oh, my gosh. Me, too. Me, too. Especially for a whole new topic. Uh-huh. Um, but it's always fun having friends of the show come back on to yeah. chat about new work that they're doing. Well, to our listeners, we are joined today by Dr. Daryl R. Van Tongren. He is an associate professor of psychology at Hope College and director of the Frost Center for Social Science Research. With a background in social psychology, he has more than 200 scientific publications on topics such as meaning in life, humility, religion, forgiveness, relationships, and well-being. And his award-winning work has been supported by numerous external grants, and covered by several media outlets. He is the author of The Courage to Suffer, a new clinical framework for life's greatest crises, alongside his wife, Sarah A. Showalter Van Tongren. And that's a throwback to our episode 103. Uh, But most recently, and what we're going to be talking about and focusing on today, is that he wrote a new book called Humble, Free Yourself from the Traps of a Narcissistic World. He enjoys running, biking, and hiking near where he lives with his wife, Sarah, in Holland, Michigan. Daryl, welcome back to the show. It's so good to have you on today. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. It's great to be back. That's wonderful. Well, we um, are so excited to have you back on and to talk about uh, your new work around humility. But before we do, is there anything that we missed in the bio? Goodness. No, I'm flattered. I think you covered it all. (laughs) I know it's always fun hearing um, it. um it's it's or fun, interesting, I don't know, whatever the word is, but I'm glad that it's all well covered in there. So I'm really excited for you to come back on the show um, and to be talking about some of the new work that you've been doing around this area. Um, but I'd love to start with hearing a little bit about the backstory into this work that you've been doing on humility. Like, tell us a little bit about what's led you into this work in general and and your interest in it? Sure. Yeah. So some of my earliest work in my doctoral program focused on forgiveness. And uh, I spent a few years working on forgiveness and some graduate school colleagues and I were really pressing into trying to figure out what are the things that lead to forgiveness? Who forgives well? What type of people are likely to be forgiven? What makes for a good apology? And in our mind, everything kind of centered around this one relational character trait of humility, right? The people who were most likely to ask for and to be forgiven were people who were humble. Uh, the people who were most yeah. likely to be forgiven were people who are humble. And so humility emerged as this really important relational characteristic, this relational virtue. And so we started studying this right near the end of graduate school over a decade ago. And we really wanted to try to figure out what does it mean to be humble? And so one of the earliest challenges we tried to tackle was the not-so-ironic task of measuring humility. <laughs> so you might imagine if you ask somebody, how yeah. humble are you? You know, what, what, is a, what does a high score mean? Is that someone who's humble or is that, you know, what a humble person underreports mm-hmm. their scores? Mm-hmm. Would, a, would only a narcissist claim to be humble when everyone knows they have room to grow? 
And so we spent a few years trying to solve that paradox. But once we once we kind of moved past that, we really started to uncover and reveal just how powerfully transformative humility is. Yeah. As kind of a good playsetter, maybe, can you define humility? Because I think most people would have kind of a general sense, right? But like, was there a pretty specific definition you were working with? Yeah. So the way that I like to think about humility is that it, there are three parts. So it's our ability to know ourselves, to check ourselves, and go beyond ourselves. So in terms of knowing ourselves, it comes with an, an accurate awareness of ourself. So a self-awareness of our strengths and of our limitations, things we're good at, but also things and areas where we can improve. To check ourselves is the ability for us to rein in and hold back on our egoistic or selfish motivation. So we all like accepting the praise, but can we also be good at sharing the blame? And then finally, to go beyond ourselves, humility is marked by this other-orientedness. So by this desire to meet the needs of others and view others' needs as equal to our own. So knowing ourselves, checking ourselves, and going beyond ourselves. Another, another helpful frame, and one that I think a lot of people resonate with, is that humility is about being the right size. So not too big, but also not too small. So most people are well aware of the narcissistic ditch where people uh, are too big for a given situation and they overestimate their ability uh, or they overperceive their own self uh, superiority. But the ditch on the other side is just as dangerous and that's being too small in a given situation. So being too small, uh -huh. that's not really humility. That's something like self-deprecation or servility. Uh -huh. uh, and so humility is being the right size in a given situation. Hmm. That's I love really that. Good. I like that balance. Even just the the definition of uh, or the the way you're describing it there of of the the right size, right? I mean, I think even that is like a a cool way to think about it, as opposed to like, are you pumping yourself up or tearing yourself down, right? Like, but I don't know. That just I love that, and and I think that that makes sense, and that separates it from what we might, you know, sometimes we get into like, oh, well, no matter what anybody said, you know, any compliment, I kind of go, oh, whatever, you know, like not not appreciating anything about yourself, but that, that middle ground of like, yes, this is an accurate view of myself. Right, right. Because sometimes do, people do fall into that trap of false modesty, right? Or false humility, <clears throat> where you give them a compliment and they say, oh, that was nothing. But what people don't realize is, well, that wasn't really nothing, right? If, if you won some type of award and other people also applied for the same award, if you say that was nothing, you know, and, and it's not that big of a deal, you can only imagine how it might make other people feel who really wanted to win that award or people who you were also competing with. And oftentimes people make those comments when they're just trying to get people to affirm, oh, yes, it was. You did this such great job. So again, yeah, it's it's kind of owning your right size, not too big or too small. Yeah, that's good. That's good. Um, yeah, finding that balance. I think that's so important. And one of the things that I really like that you talk about in this book, too, is that there's different types of humility. The, you, you outline a few different, four different types early on in the book, including relational humility, intellectual humility, cultural humility, existential humility. I know there are, there are others, too, that I've seen, but these four especially, I think, are so important. Can you talk with us a little bit about those or, um, yeah, just about the different types of humility? Yeah, absolutely. So relational humility is when humility shows up, well, in our relationships. And so... 
what this is, is it's a signal that we kind of convey to other people about what it would be like to be in a relationship with us. And so people who are relationally humble are able to uh, kind of think about and meet the needs of other people. They're able to um, kind of view others as equal and treat them with respect and, and, uh, and equality. The kind of the second feature, the second kind of humility is intellectual humility. And with intellectual humility, we're talking about humility around ideas. And so with humility around ideas, what we're talking about is, can you own the limitations of your beliefs and be open to new insights, be curious, and seek learning? Uh, the third humility is cultural humility. And this is humility around ways of life that we often see in cultural interactions. So people who are culturally humble, they realize that their way of seeing the world or, or viewing culture or their approach to life is not superior, and they can appreciate the cultures and ways of life of other people, and in fact, view that type of diversity as a strength. And then finally, we can think of existential humility, which is also can be thought of as either cosmic or spiritual humility, as focusing on some of the ultimate questions that all humans have to deal with. And we oftentimes experience this when we feel relatively small in the scope of nature or the universe or God. And usually the way that it comes out is we feel particularly grateful for something or to someone or, or something greater or larger than ourselves. So for example, feeling small when looking through a telescope and considering our relative size uh, in the universe. So. Humility can show up in our relationships when we're discussing ideas like politics or religion, uh, in our cultural interactions with other people, and then finally, when we're reflecting on our place in the universe. Well, that's huh. good. I love that. I love just the just the nuance to it so that it's not just this one big gauzy topic, but like really starting to bring it down to like, how does this actually show up for us? Um, that's yeah. really helpful walking through those. Yeah. Yeah, I'm, I'm curious, right, because like Holly was saying, I mean, I think that's a, a, a newish idea to me, having read through this book, the different types of humility, right, which actually, again, is a really helpful way of bringing it down. So it's not just, oh, well, yes, you're either humble or you're not, but knowing there's different areas. So I'm curious, are there across people or generations or ages or I don't know, are there different places where maybe some of these seem more common, like, oh, these this type, you know, people here. I don't know. I'm just curious in terms of like where we see those show up across different po populations or anything like that. Is that like a, a realistic thing or is it, you know, kind of evenly spread across different groups? Yeah. So I think, yeah, I think one of the things you're kind of highlighting, which, which I want to make sure I make clear is we can be humble in one area, one area and not another. Now, ideally <laughs> we, we, we'd, lo we'd love to be humble in all of these areas, but it's entirely possible that someone might be humble in their relationships, perhaps even at home. But when it comes to the ideas that they have, they're actually not willing to change or willing to budge. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, you could imagine, for example, um, some people who, for whom their profession is all around ideas, like academics, right? Lots of academics, mm -hmm. kind of around, very <laughs> humble, but don't criticize their ideas because all of a sudden they get ferociously defensive about their theory. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Yes. And just maybe it's just me or the people I interact with. No, yes. We see it all across right. academia. Yeah. Right. Or or you know, you might imagine that culturally people who have interactions kind of across cultures might be more culturally humble. They might be better able to to translate and navigate against different spaces with different uh, norms. Sure. 
But maybe Mm -hmm. when they go back home with their family, they're not particularly humble. And so, you know, I, I think one of the things that we're all dealing with right now is we live in a culture of increasing narcissism. And so one way to think about this is the moving sidewalk is always moving towards narcissistic arrogance. So every morning, I am a step closer to narcissism than I was when I went to bed, unless I'm actively walking against that moving walkway. And so I think as a culture, we really have to be intentional about trying to continually put in the work to be more humble. Because all we have to do is look at our phones, open up or turn on our computers, flip on the TV, and we see an incredible lack of intellectual humility, right? When people are discussing politics and religion, mm-hmm. there's usually not an, uh, an eagerness to learn or a curiosity. We're usually just waiting for the other person to stop talking long enough for us to convince them that they're wrong and we're right. Um, and, if, and if they don't, then we derogate them or denigrate them or somehow view them as less than human. And yeah. so if we're not actively making strides to prioritize humility, we're going to find ourselves being unable to interact with people with whom we disagree. And we're going to see a further separation and division across a number of different ideological uh, domains. That's that's really helpful. I, I appreciate how you're identifying that it's kind of this current that we are um, constantly like moving toward this direction of narcissism, whether or not we realize it because of what's around us, like that's moving us in that direction all the time. But I would love if you could maybe to the degree to which you feel comfortable kind of telling us a little bit more about narcissism or just kind of unpacking that a little bit, because it does seem to be a really important piece in this in the context of this conversation about humility yeah you know so back in the back in the 70s and 80s and 90s yeah largely in the 80s and 90s research on self-esteem really started taking off right so you've got three decades where all these people all these social psychologists right people who uh, my academic ancestors were studying self-esteem and by the 90s everyone was saying, you know what, I bet the thing that we need to do to solve all of our social problems is tell everybody that they're amazingly fantastic. We just need to boost self-esteem. And so, you know, for decades, we we kind of overemphasize the importance of self-esteem. The problem is all of those self-esteem interventions didn't really work. And in fact, right now, there's been a, a lot of research by Gene Twangney and Keith Campbell uh-huh. and a number of other researchers that suggest we're undergoing this narcissism epidemic. And so uh-huh. scores on the narcissistic personality inventory have been steadily increasing for the past 40 years. And so really when you're thinking about uh, narcissism, you're thinking about self-aggrandizement, so people who are viewing themselves as overly important, perceived superiority, so people who think they're better than other, uh, than other people, and an overly strong focus on the self, right? And so yeah. what this has led to is most of us have been raised in and are currently living in an environment <clears throat> where we're taught that our self-worth is based on these external contingencies or these external standards. And so what this means is we're consistently pursuing this external validation in order to consider ourselves people of worth and value. And so we tell ourselves things like, well, I'd only be worthy enough or I'm only loved if I'm attractive enough or 
successful enough or rich enough or any number of metrics that all we have to do is get on social media and realize that we're falling well short of. And so what ends up happening is we feel lonely, we feel depressed, we feel anxious, and we're constantly pursuing a rather elusive set of standards in order to give us the self-worth that we already have. And so we end up not living lives of authenticity because we're continually trying to gain the approval and validation of this moving goalpost of other people, and we can never quite live up to that. And that's why humility can be so freeing. Huh. Oh, man, that's so thank you for walking us through that. I think I love I mean, my researcher heart loves hearing the research background to that, too, and have heard similar um, layers around that. that but um but yeah, I mean, you're right. I I can totally see how it has led us to this point where, you know, like you said, we're just kind of constantly moving in that direction and we actually have to do some of that work to move in the opposite direction towards humility. What's interesting about everything you just said is none of that seems particularly new, even in terms of, you know, maybe back in the 90s when, when we were saying, okay, we need to boost self-esteem, probably with some of the same type of, you know, okay, when the when the externals aren't there, then people are feeling bad about themselves, right? Like, and so it's like the, maybe the, the way, the top level of how we're trying to meet those has shifted with the times, but that it's the same basic, like underneath all of that is still pretty low self-esteem almost, right? Like, I don't know, it's just interesting hearing you describe that sounded exactly like maybe what in the 90s, and obviously you, I know you said there's, there's trends, but like the core component there of, you know, okay, we're chasing externals to validate, right? Like that seems the same, like that's that's what I would look at and say, okay, how do we boost your self-esteem internally, right? So I don't know, it's, just, it's interesting. Yeah, and what I think it set us up for is what some researchers call high fragile self-esteem. So what this yeah. means is we probably think pretty highly of ourselves but that view is incredibly contingent and it's incredibly fragile. So the slightest thing to disrupt our overly positive view of ourselves in our mind causes us to take a rather precipitous fall. And so what humility tries to do is it tries to come in and humility is really based on starting from a place of psychological security. So mm -hmm. the truly humble people are psychologically secure. They mm -hmm. realize that they're already worthy they're already loved, they're already enough. Regardless of their achievements, regardless of external feedback, you start from a place of enoughness. And if you can start from a place of enoughness, it's, it's incredibly transforming because you have these cascading effects. If I'm already enough, then I don't need other people to validate my beliefs because I'm not my beliefs. I don't have to get defensive. It's just my beliefs that we're talking about. If I'm already starting from a place of enoughness, I can meet the needs of other people because I'm not worried about my needs. I'm not overly worried about my needs. I'm still worried about them as much as I'm worried about others, but I'm not overly concerned about my needs because I realize I'm already loved. I'm already worthy and, and those needs will get met. Right? If I start from a place of enoughness, I realize I can learn from other people who are different from me. And in fact, that can be a strength rather than starting from a, from a deficit or a, a place of insecurity. And so humility as enoughness and as a sense of security allows us to approach other people non-defensively, uh, with an open heart and open mind and, and with open eyes. Oh my gosh, you are just speaking my language. I love all of this, <laughs> Daryl. 
It's so I, it's so beautifully overlaps with some of the research that I've done in social work. Um, and so a lot of what you're saying is like, yes, yes, that's it. Yep. I love it. I love it. So, and you, you articulate it so beautifully. So thank you. Yeah, absolutely. I, I would be curious. So you, you're kind of already moving us in this direction, but I would love for you to tell us a little bit about why is this so important for us to be cultivating this within our lives? Like what are some of the, the, the impacts and the benefits of humility and kind of leaning into and cultivating this within our lives? Yeah. So, you know, one of the, there are a few really strong reasons why we should consider humility. So, um, Holly, Robert, you all both know my wife, Sarah, is a clinician Uh and mental health therapist. Mm -hmm. And and what she mentioned to me when I was writing this book, she said, you know, Daryl, most people's problems that come up in therapy, most of the, the tension there is people have a distorted relationship with reality, right? Part of it is they can't see reality as they should. And, you know, that, that's not everything, but that's a, that's a portion of it. And so to the degree that humility is an accurate and, and more objective view of yourself and the world, one of the clearest things that humility can help you do is see yourself and the world as it is instead of how we want it to be. And now that's a painful and scary process to shed some of those positive illusions, (laughs) right? Mm -hmm. Those positive illusions are pretty adaptive. I I need to think that I'm incredibly important and valuable and that everyone will will remember my book for, you know, generations to come. That, That gets me out of bed in the morning to write the book. But that's probably, on the other hand, probably going to set me up for a little disappointment if it if reality doesn't match my outsized expectations. And so one of the first benefits of cultivating humility is what researchers call the well-being hypothesis. And that is when we have humility, people with higher humility have better well-being in part because they can see themselves and the world around them more accurately and more objectively. And when you kind of help work against some of these inherent biases that all of us have baked in, you're allowed to make more effective, wise, and value-aligned decisions. And so that can move you towards a life that you'd like to have. The the second benefit, and maybe the clearest set of benefits that we see, is that humility is really, really good for relationships. Um, Most people really want to be in a relationship with someone who's humble. So in one of my first studies that I did on humility, we had people fill out a mock dating profile, and then they read fictional dating profiles of humble or arrogant partners. And overwhelmingly, people want to be with humble relative to arrogant partners. And we see this in lots of different domains. We see this in ongoing relationships. We see that people are more satisfied, more committed to people, uh, to their partners when they're humble. They're more likely to forgive them. They have better physiological responses when they're Uh arguing about a persistent area of conflict. And then finally, The last area that we really see a benefit of uh, humility is navigating power differentials or places where conflict might be high. And so Uh. humility is incredibly powerful and beneficial for leaders. So research has found you can be a pretty hard driving and pretty high achieving leader as long as you still treat your employees and the people whom you're leading with humility. So humility kind of works like a social oil it helps reduce the relational wear and tear uh, of, of high demand 
high conflict power differential situations. Oh, huh. that's that's fascinating. Yeah, I like that lean on leadership or linking leadership into that as well. But I think Sarah's, you know, to what you were saying about Sarah and her and mentioning that so many struggles are tied to, you know, the degree to which we view our our world around us and experiences and the accuracy of that. I think, you know, that makes sense and how we react to the ways in which we view the world around us. I, oh. I, that makes perfect sense. And, and yeah, so thank you for unpacking those. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So I'm curious, and, and maybe this is my like therapist bent uh, of, it seems like the way to, because you said maybe even those are adaptive, right? Believing that my book is going to be the best thing in the world, that's what gets me out of bed to then go work on it, right? And pairing that with some of the, the fragile uh, humility or fragile self-esteem that you were talking about, right? It seems like the way to make the uh, bursting of those bubbles less painful, right? Less earth shattering. And so then maybe we'd be more more willing to do that is to boost some of the the secure, like actual humility, right? In terms of, well, if it's a, if my book isn't the best book in the whole world, that's actually okay. I don't need that to be the thing, even if like I have worth besides that, right? Yeah, so like, exactly right. is yeah. that- that the okay cool yeah 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 you're, you're exactly right right my worth and value is independent of fill in the blank right so right. yeah my book doesn't need to be uh the best thing ever or change you know be the best seller um it has it it has value in the same way that i have worth and value kind of independent of those external metrics yeah yeah uh -huh. you know and, and another thing i think that helps ground people sometimes um is, is kind of getting a sense of, well, what is our right size? So if humility is about being the right size, I think sometimes our right size is rather small. And so uh, my wife and I took a, a trip to Iceland and we were fortunate enough to be able to see the Northern Lights. And you know, it was one of those situations where my wife did all this research and Sarah found that if we woke up at you know midnight and drew, drove an hour outside of Reykjavik by 2 a.m., if we stood in a random abandoned church parking lot and looked you know in a certain direction, we would have a high likelihood of seeing the Northern Lights. We, we took a gamble, we went out there, and we were waiting and waiting and waiting. And finally, the most amazing experience happened and the sky just opened and for about half an hour, the northern lights just completely enveloped us. And it was probably the closest thing that I'd ever experienced uh, of, of a deep connection with the divine or the transcendent. And in that moment, I realized that my right size was rather small. And it never felt so good to feel so small and so, dare I say, insignificant at that moment. Because what that does is it kind of puts all of the other things that I get worried about, all my other anxieties, all my other concerns and stresses in their rightful place. Because I realize that I'm just one tiny part of something much larger than myself. So Remember. sometimes right-sizing is realizing we're actually quite small and that's okay. Yeah. Yeah. Well. No, I I mean, one, thank you for sharing that that moment that you and Sarah had. Like that is incredible and beautiful. And I am so happy for y'all to have had that experience and together, no less, like when it gets. Yeah. I also recognize, you know, those moments of having these, they're not day-to-day -day experiences that we have these big transcendent experiences that, that really kind of 
put, as you said, like put things in their place and you feel good about feeling small as you did in that moment. Are there some ways in which, or I don't know, what would you recommend in thinking about like, you know, since that's not something that folks can kind of experience on an everyday basis, um, like (laughs) how do we go about kind of leaning into this, you know, as to cultivate humility um, or, or what are some other ways that you've seen folks engage in this or, or lean into humility? Yeah. So, so to cultivate humility, that's a great question, right? No, not everyone can like, you know, book a trip to some place on the planet to see the Northern Lights. Though I highly right. recommend it. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, so I think one of the places that we can start is by seeking feedback. And so, you know, one of the first times I did an interview for humility, my wife and I were supposed to go to the beach. You know, it was a summer uh summer Friday and in Michigan, you know, the, the good beach weather is, is a small window of the year. And so we had made a commitment that we were going to go to the beach on this Friday. And so although we had, I had promised that we were going to go at 11 o'clock, I took a, I took a phone call with a, with a reporter who wanted to do an interview for me on humility on one of my papers mm-hmm. that had just come out. Okay. And so I asked Sarah, she was very kind and gracious and said, sure, you know, take the interview. And I thought, I told her, oh, it only take, you know, 10, 15 minutes. Well, more than an okay. hour later, yeah. <laughs> oh. they emerge back up. She's so patiently waiting. And, you know, right before the interview had ended, the interviewer said, you know, I'm curious if someone who has studied humility is actually any more humble, given that you've spent all this time studying humility. You know, it would be great is you should ask your wife how humble you are. So I said, yeah, I'd love to do that and I'll report back. So I go upstairs, you know, after this interview, my wife, you know, Sarah had waited over an hour, maybe like an hour and 15 minutes. She'd packed the lunches. She got the beach bags ready. She was ready to go. And in another moment of arrogance, I said, Hey, you know, I know that you were waiting and you packed everything, but would you mind driving all this stuff out to the beach? Because, you know, I'm training for a marathon and I need to get a seven mile run in and I'll just run the seven miles to the beach and meet you there. Oh yeah. By the way, how humble would you say I am on a scale of one to 10? <laughs> oh, Daryl. <laughs> well, timing was not my friend. And also um, <laughs> those were a series of pretty narcissistic moves. So, you know, she rated me on a scale of one to 10. She gave me a four. And I say, oh, no. And then she goes, well, wait a minute. Is one high or low? And I'm like, oh, well, well you know, maybe if she got, you know, if there was confusion about the scaling, I'm still above the midpoint. Uh-huh. <laughs> no, I clarified. And, and no, she stuck with a four. So yeah, uh-huh. <laughs> it was one of those moments where I realized the first thing we need to do is get feedback. The second thing we need to do is what I did not do, which is, uh, to avoid getting defensive when you get that feedback. So as soon as she gave me the feedback, I launched in about, oh, that doesn't seem fair. Here I am. I, you know, Here's how I'm humble. Here's another reason I'm humble. That's never going to work, right? If someone gives you feedback, by definition, you, know, you should trust that feedback if they're a valued and trustworthy source. So, you know, I've asked someone who knows me better than anyone else, how humble am I? And in that moment, she's like, not very humble. So... Seek feedback from a trusted source. Reduce defensiveness when you get that feedback. And then the third thing we can really do, and if, and if there's only one thing people have time to do and they take away, it would be to cultivate a deep sense of empathy. And so empathy has both uh, a head component and a heart component. So the head component is being able to take someone else's perspective. Imagine what they might be thinking or experiencing in a particular situation. And then the heart component is to feel 
to emotionally attune to somebody else. So what might they be feeling? Can you feel what they might be feeling? And so to the degree that we can cultivate a strong sense of empathy, take other people's perspective, and attune to their emotional responses and reality, that's going to be one of the strongest things we can do to cultivate a sense of humility. And then I think we need to realize that humility is more like a marathon and less like a sprint. Okay. So it's something we have yeah. to try to work at day in and day out. We have to keep on you know, swimming against the tide or walking against the moving sidewalk, whatever the metaphor may be, in order to put in the good work. It takes practice to cultivate humility. Yeah, no, that's that's good. I mean, I think what you just kind of walk through and even explaining when and I appreciate you sharing your own story, you know, and yeah, I'm I'm sure, you know, as a researcher studying humility, you know, having to navigate this within your own space like that, that's its own interesting adventure <laughs> in and of itself. That's Yeah. yeah. Yes. It's it's been a it's been, you know, Whenever people say that they study humility, the first thing they say is, "Oh, that's what I want my, you know, my in-laws to have." That's, you know, it's not necessarily mm-hmm. something they want to cultivate. It's something they want in other people. <laughs> and the second thing I realized is how far I, uh, how far I have to go. You know, I am far okay. from having perfected this. Yeah. No. Well, I, I hear you, and I think what you're offering us, though, with these different ways of cultivating humility, is some some hope and some some mechanisms by which we can live into it while allowing the permission for it to not have to be something we were perfect at. Like we're never going to be perfect at humility. I mean, that's like, they don't go together yeah. in that way. Right. So exactly. Yeah. So that's you think okay. you're so good at humility. I know. <laughs> Back up. Yeah. <laughs> oh man. Well, I'd love to, you know, one of the things that we really love to ask our our guests when they come on the show is um, to tell us a little bit about their hope for this work. I mean, you've done so much work around humility in general and so many other areas of well-being. And obviously, we've brought you on before for an earlier episode. And I mean, and I love getting to read your work anyways, just as another scholar in like a parallel-ish field, like just seeing the work that you and your team are doing is just amazing. But specific to this work around humility, I'd love to hear what your hope is for this work that you're doing. Yeah, well, thanks, and, and thank you for your kind words. Um, you know, I think my hope, my, my, I think my hope for this is one of my biggest hopes is to dispel some myths about what humility is not, and to be clear about what humility is. And so, I think some of the myths that humility uh, around humility is that humility is weakness, or humility is you know, this tool of oppression to keep people who have been minoritized or out of power, you know, kind of subjugated and quiet. And that really couldn't be further from the truth. Um, Humility is a strength. Humility is enoughness. It's security. And while I do think that humility has been used inappropriately by people who are in power to maintain Mm -hmm. that power, Mm -hmm. I think that true humility is about being the right size. And so, Folks who are listening, if if you're coming from a, a position that has a little bit more power and privilege, it's probably likely that in situations, humility is about sizing down, right? So I'm thinking about myself as a, a white male in academia. Probably what I'm going to need to do when I'm thinking about cultivating humility is how can I size down, right? How can yeah. I the right size down? But for folks who have been marginalized or have historically not been in positions of power or been in minoritized groups, 
Humility might be about sizing up, right? It might be about taking up the space that you have rightfully earned. And in that way, humility really can be this liberatory virtue, right? It can be something in which people own their expertise. They own their seat at the table, right? And they're not confusing humility with, with being silent, being weak, being too quiet. You know, if, if I have to go in for, um, you know, a major surgery and let's say it's a brain surgery and my surgeon comes in and she says, uh, Hey Daryl, uh, what do you think we should do in this situation? I, I don't know. Right. I'm not the brain surgeon. That would not be an appropriate use of humility right. there. That, mm-hmm. That's being too yeah. small in a situation. I want the brain surgeon to come in and say, I went, to, you know, because of all my expertise, education, and experience, this is what we're doing. And I'm going to say, yep, I believe you. Let's do it. Uh-huh. And so for folks who who kind of shudder or might think that humility is about is a weakness or is about keeping people down, I, I think part of it is dispelling that myth, helping them see what it actually is. And then I think it's actually starting a, a bit of a humility revolution where people can say, you know, this ancient virtue that's been around for so long actually has modern science to back up its transformative power. And if we as communities, as a collective, decide that we're going to prioritize humility, maybe we can start working towards a more loving, a more just, a more inclusive, and a more open-minded and curious society where we can get along with people with whom we disagree, where we don't have to be fractured around ideological disagreements, where we can actually value each other, respect differences, and, and you know, not always act with defensiveness and by digging our heels in. Because I think that this narcissism paired with some pretty strong ideological polarization is leading to a, a system that makes it really really untenable for human flourishing. And so I'm hoping that the more people that find out and hear about and uh, can understand the benefits of humility, hopefully it can start nudging our society in a way that's healthier, more loving, and and more just. Yeah. Love that. Yeah. Okay. I love that. Well, one other question that we've been asking folks this season as they come on the show uh, I don't, you know, we're curious to hear from people. What is serving your soul these days? Yeah, so serving my soul, I would say one of the things that continues to serve my soul is being in nature. And so um, I know we can't all go see the Northern Lights, but maybe most of us could at least get to some part of nature because there's something for me about being around nature that has been here long before I was alive and looking up at the trees that will be here long after I'm gone is a good way of rooting me. It's a good way of helping me remember my size. Uh, and it's a good way of allowing me to feel connected to something bigger and larger than myself. Oh, that's so good. I love that. Thank you for for answering that question with us. Yeah. Well, um, listener, you can connect with Dr. Daryl Van Tongeren, um through his website, which is at DarylVanTongren.com. Um, you can find him on Instagram at Daryl Van Tongren or Twitter at Dr. Van Tongren. We'll have the links to those in the show notes, as well as a link to pick up his book, Humble, Free Yourself from the Traps of a Narcissistic World, and his previous book that, again, shout out back to or throw back to episode 103, 
where he came on and talked about the courage to suffer. If you want to connect with the show, you can find us at cxmhpodcast.com or at any social media at cxmhpodcast. If you want to connect with Robert, you can find him at robert-4.com or on any social media at robert 4 Or if you want to connect with me, you can find me at hollyoxhandler.com or on any social media at hollyoxhandler. Daryl, thank you again so, so very much for joining us today um, and for, you know, teaching us to be a little bit more humble. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much for having me. I appreciate the time. Very great. Yeah, absolutely. Do you have any um, closing thoughts for our listeners today? Uh, I'm just grateful to be able to share a little bit about humility, and I hope that uh, they explore some of the benefits that humility may have for their lives. Thanks for listening to the CXMH podcast. Want to score some major brownie points? Leave us five stars and an honest review on iTunes. Follow us on social media at CXMH Podcast and email us with questions, comments, and interview requests at CXMH Podcast at gmail.com.